Welcome back, podcast listeners. This is episode 49 of the podcast. As usual, I am your host, Mr. Mike Giant. And today, I'm going to kind of pick up where I left off and reminisce on some things that happened in 1996. Uh, at the time, I was living at uh, 8th Avenue and Geary Street in San Francisco. Uh, I was living with my buddy Ben, who I also worked with at Think Skateboards. He was the uh, graphic designer and I was the illustrator and together we were able to take care of everything they needed visually. Uh, ben was great. Um, I forget it what point but he started dating this lady that lived um just up the street and uh they really hit it off um to the point where he wanted to move in with her and uh asked if he could move out and uh he already had uh, a roommate lined up for me a guy that he worked with at a uh it was like a printing agency, if I remember right, um, where you would take your digital files to have things printed, like uh, business cards and flyers and brochures, uh, stuff like that. It was a really busy shop. But uh, Ben arranged for me to meet this guy. I fucking wish I could remember his name. <laughs> but I honestly can't. I probably blocked it out. Um, but in any case, uh, we met at uh, our favorite little Irish pub nearby over on, uh, uh, what would that be? Clement Street. I think it's still there. It's at like 6th and Clement. And they had a great upstairs with uh, pool tables. We like to hang out up there. So I met his coworker. And, uh, he seemed reasonably normal. He seemed a little weird, but most of the people that I knew were rather weird. <laughs> so I wasn't really tripping on that part. Um, but we got along and, uh, I think we all parted ways, you know, that evening. Right, me, me and Ben walked back to the house and, uh, I think he just asked if, you know, I would mind having that guy move in. And, uh, I thought, yeah, sure. He seems fine. It would only be for like, I think it was only like three, maybe four months. Um, and I thought, okay, I can, even if he's bad, like I could figure out a way to make this work. So, uh, soon after Ben moved out, uh, he was pumped and, uh, in moved this guy and uh there were two bedrooms to the left and right of the front door when you walked in and then in the back was another large bedroom basically uh and the kitchen was in the back and in the far back to the right um was the bathroom um I was in the front be bedroom 
right on the street, right next to the front door, just to the right when you'd walk in. And uh, both other bedrooms were completely empty at the time once Ben had moved out. Because uh, we were using the the back bedroom as like a, like a workshop. He had built tables and we had computers in there and drawing tools and everything that we needed. Like a little office. It was super rad. And it was the first time that I had uh, Wi-Fi in the house, which was a trip. And uh, he was in the, the other front bedroom on the street. So when he moved out, it was really like pretty fucking empty. <laughs> uh, so this guy moves in and uh, he wanted to use the, the back bedroom furthest away from mine. And I thought that was fine. Um, it had a window out to the, um, the middle of the building. So he had ventilation and stuff. And uh, that left the, the front other bedroom empty, which was fine too. Um, I think everything was cool for just a hot minute. But <laughs> I remember coming home from work and he was in my room. He had opened the door, literally opened the door and gone into my room and was sitting on my bed watching my television. And... Uh, I was just like, <laughs> I was ready to beat him up right there. But I, you know, I was like, fuck, dude, what are you doing in my room at all? Like, wh what are you doing? And he was like, oh, I just wanted to watch TV. I didn't think you'd mind. And I was like, dude, I mind terribly. Don't ever come in this room. Ever. Ever. If the door's shut or it's open, don't ever, ever come in here. And I really tried to threaten him. And I took the TV out of my room and I put it in the empty bedroom on the floor and I put a milk crate in there. And I was like, if you want to watch TV, you watch it in there. Don't ever come in my room again. And he was like, okay, 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 don't trip, don't trip. And I was like, you know, in my head, like, what the fuck? How could he even have assumed that that would have been okay? <laughs> to this day, I don't know what the fuck. You know, if you're that roommate, you're a fucking douchebag don't fucking do that shit stay out of your roommates rooms but anyway so it was kind of off to a bad start and uh i think from then on he kind of tried to avoid me because he could tell just from that first interaction that i was ready to beat him up <laughs> i was i was pissed but uh he he just kind of hid out in his room he would leave for work uh I think a little bit after I would, so I wouldn't really see him in the morning and our timing didn't cross for using the bathroom and stuff. It wasn't a big deal. Um, and like I say, from then on, he kind of just stayed back in his room and he kept the door shut. Uh, at some point he asked if he could have a friend from, I believe it was Texas come visit this lady. And I was like, yeah, I think that's fine as long as, you know, I don't have to deal with her and she stays in your room and, you know, if you're not here, I'd rather she not be here, you know? And he was like, okay, okay. And in my head, I was thinking like, who the hell would fly out from anywhere to hang out with this guy? Like, he was so gross, you know? And I guess... 
I guess it was, I guess that was the big thing. So she came to visit and immediately I was like, this lady's a drug addict. I'd been around drug addicts. I mean, it's fucking San Francisco in the 90s. <laughs> you know, she looked like she was on heroin. Maybe a lot of coke, too. I knew they, I know they did a lot of coke. Um, and drank a lot of hard alcohol. And she was just really, really skinny, gaunt. Her skin was all discolored from being super unhealthy. Her hair was super oily and just really gross. Looked like a kind of like a, what would you call them? Those lot lizards. Like a prostitute at a truck stop, you know. <laughs> this lady was fucked up. But it kind of made sense that she was there to see this dude. Because he was fucked up too, you know. And I was just trying to kind of steer clear of him. But, uh, like I said, I'd asked him to not let her stay there while he was away at work, you know. Because I didn't really know her. But uh, one random day, I think I took a day off and she was there. And she came out of the room. And was really surprised to see me. And, uh, but still tried to like strike up a conversation with me and try to be friendly because she knew she was in deep shit. Uh, just in the way that I was kind of looking at her even. Um, and I think I told her like, you're not supposed to be here when he's not here. I don't know if he told you that, but he agreed to that with me. You know, and she was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just, I was hoping to take a shower, and then I was going to leave for the day. And I was like, all right, all right, go ahead and do that. And I remember she left the door open to his bedroom, and I couldn't help it, but I looked in. I mean, even before I looked in, I could smell it. Like, I don't know how, it's amazing to me, like, how smell can accumulate until it's like this, like, thickness in the air like he he had never opened the back window to his bedroom I think ever so it was like all the sweat and stink and funk of whatever the fuck they were doing in there was just hanging in there and I just I don't know it was just such a surprising smell it was so physical and made me wretch you know because I, I was just like well how how can they not smell how bad that is? You know, it was just bizarre. Um, and it was a, a fucking mess. It was like a rat's nest. It was just shit all over the place. Nothing was in any order. There were clothes all over the place. There were empty boxes and food wrappers and empty bottles and just disgustingness you know just like little rolled up uh bits of toilet paper and uh, i i just had no idea uh, who i was living with i guess <laughs> that's all i could say i was really surprised so i think i mentioned it to ben and he was like i'm sorry i kind of knew this guy was trouble and uh but, you know, it was only, I think, another month or so at that point that I still needed to live with him. And I think I had already started to look for a new place to live by then, too. Was asking around, seeing if friends had an extra room. Um, so soon, soon after I ran into her, maybe just a day or two later, uh, 
I think I come home again at a random time during the afternoon. Uh, I couldn't be sure if she was there because it was quiet in his room and the door was shut. And I still didn't feel like it was okay for me to open his door to check. Um, but when I got to the bathroom, there was like streaks of blood all over the walls and on the floor like all four walls it was my immediate thought was that somebody was shooting up into their arm and something went wrong and it was just shooting out um i could be terribly wrong but it was just like and, and then it looked like they just panicked and just ran around in a little circle in the bathroom because it was just it was all over everything it was so gnarly and i didn't know whose blood it was i didn't know if it was the lady or the or dude i had no idea but i was just like this can't be here for even another second more because i think it, it was still wet and I was like, if this dries, it's it's not going to be able to, it's, it's not coming out of these walls. And it was a rental. And I was only going to be there for like another month, a matter of weeks. So I physically got out some bleach spray and a few rolls of paper towels. And I cleaned the whole bathroom down. And uh, I was pissed. <laughs> and a little scared even, you know. Like, what the fuck's happening? So... I waited for dude to come home from work and uh, I grabbed him and pulled him aside and told him what I found and uh, told him that his, uh, you know, it's out of hand, uh, like completely 100% out of hand and that uh, his girl needed to go like immediately, th that minute if possible. Uh, but certainly sh she was not allowed to stay the night at all. You know, I don't know how much longer they had planned on her being there or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I just I told him she's got to go. So he was like, fuck, man, I'm sorry, you know, all this. And I was like, just, dude, I don't even want to hear it. We only need to see each other, you know, for a matter of days for the rest of our fucking lives. Just get this lady out of here. Take care of your shit, you know, and, uh. Just, just don't make this fucking worse, bro. You know? Don't make it worse. And uh, he got her out of there. I think he actually booked her a flight to go back to where she was um, that night. And just, like, wiped his hands of her. It was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> uh, but that shit happens sometimes when you... With roommates and you know, changes and transitions and trying to be cool to your homie that wants to move in with this lady. Like, that's just life. I, I don't have any regrets about it. But, uh, y you know, I have actually one more story about that, dude. I, I had some friends that came from Albuquerque, a group of girls, three of them, real pretty girls, uh, my raver homies. And uh, they were staying in my room. And, uh, again, like, I... He uh, he saw that they were there. I had told him, but I told him, you leave them alone. You know, they don't want anything to do with you. Just go to work. And, of course, he's there trying to, like, 
chat them up and become their friend and be like, oh, yeah, me and Mike are tight. And I had told them we're not tight, like try to avoid my roommate at all costs. And they had to be like, really, no, you, you need to go away, sir. We're scared right now. Um, you need to leave. You know, you wouldn't be here talking to us if Mike was here. You know that you need to leave. Please go away. Please, sir, go away. You're scaring us. And he just didn't fucking get it. And uh, I remember I had to have a really stern conversation with him about that, too, because he was scaring my friends. And uh, I just don't think he was smart enough to realize how much he was scaring them, intimidating them. He was a big dude like me. Uh, but, yeah, that sucked. I felt bad for the girls because then, like, from then on, when I left to go to work, they would be up and ready to go, too, because they weren't going to stay in that apartment alone with, with that dude. So it kind of, you know, just made it so they couldn't sleep in on their vacation, which, whatever, they're in San Francisco. They had fun, but that shit sucked, too, man. I felt bad about that. But I forget at what point... <coughs> Mm. I got a, so when I was living downtown on uh, Bush Street in, what would that have been, 94, before I moved into the place here at uh, 8th and Geary, um, I don't know if I even met him when we lived there maybe towards the end, but uh, an artist named Damon Soul, who some of you will be familiar with, and if you're not, uh, his last name is S-O-U-L-E, Damon Soul, D23 is what he went by as a, as a writer uh, and a street kind of painter, and uh, he's the shit, but I think at some point I ran into him and told him I was looking for a place to live. And he mentioned that there was a room available in his place where he was renting a room. Um, and uh, it was on Oak Street. Uh, what was that? Oak Street between... I think it was like Oak and Steiner? Is that right? Near Divisadero? Uh Anyway, it's, it was a big old Victorian. I think it was th it was a three-floor building, so the street level was a garage. I'm not sure if our building had a garage, to be honest. And then we were on basically the first residential level. And then I think there was somebody that lived above us, too. Um, I'm not sure how long Damon had been there, but he was trying to live on the cheap at that point. And, uh, was actually, his bedroom was the back porch of the house. Uh, I don't even know if it had heat or AC back there. It was literally the back porch. And he had set up a bed kind of nest thing with all these just layers and layers of blankets. And he would just get all the way under there to, to sleep. And it could be freezing fucking cold out there and he would be comfortable. Uh... But it was this w wacky Victorian. Um, the guy whose name on the lease uh, that was like the man of the house, he'd had it for a long time. Uh, I th believe he was English. His name was John. And he had dreadlocks. 
and he was kind of this, uh, there was a whole, like, he he is like legitimately and precisely the tribe of alternative people that created Burning Man. Him and a few of his friends were literally the creators of Burning Man. Um, and he, he was a really interesting guy. Was really into psychedelics and um, anarchist politics. Uh, wore, you know, uh, recycled clothing. Uh, tried to live as cheaply as possible. Uh, a really, really neat guy. And he he ran an interesting house, you know. And, and over the years, he had uh, gone in and, and kind of rebuilt certain things. Like my bedroom had like a tree house where the bed was because the ceilings were about 14 feet high because it was an old Victorian. Um, so a lot of people had these lofts that were really comfortable. Uh, mine was, I just uh, didn't know how sturdy it was for sex so I don't think I ever had sex up there <laughs> but uh it was comfortable for sleeping and it was literally built out of tree branches um super organic um but built well so that it was sturdy um but it was just like kind of a wonderland house it was it was super fun and uh John also was one of the organizers for food not bombs which was a, a, a program to ha uh, feed homeless people um, and also to, you know, uh, speak out against war and government overreach and all that kind of stuff. And they would, uh, they had this little mini pickup truck that was super beat up. And uh, they had this, uh, he had a gigantic uh, pot like a big metal pot with big metal handles. And it was so big, it was probably three feet across. So to cook stuff in it, we made mostly soup. Uh, it would cover all four burners of the stove in our, in our uh, kitchen. And he would go around collecting um, old vegetables, um, and whatnot. I think it was always vegetarian. I believe he was vegan. And uh, they would collect uh, bread, too, to give to the homeless people. So they have this... It. I feel like it took, like, two of us to get the soup out to the truck through the house because it was so heavy. <laughs> um, and uh, we'd put it in the back of the truck, and the truck would lower a little bit, I remember. And then somebody would kick it in the back of the truck to hold, like, the lid on or some shit. I forget how it all went down. And they just had big uh, uh, grocery, paper grocery bags full of bread that they would give out. And they would usually go down to, uh, what is that? That would be like 8th and Market Street, where the Carl's Jr. used to be. Um, I forget what that plaza is called, but it's kind of a, a meeting point for all the local homeless people and crackheads and whatnot. Uh, so they would pull up there and just start serving people. And they didn't have any permits or anything, so the police would always come and tell them, hey, you know, you don't have a permit for that. You're not supposed to do that. And they'd be like, fuck you pigs. We're just trying to feed the people. Like, you're, you're, 
you're a bastard, you know, and it, they would turn it into this big fucking mess for the cops. So the cops would usually just let them do it until they were out of soup and bread and let them go. But John explained to me that he had gone to the, I should have probably looked up. Let me see if I can. Uh, he, him and his friends had come up with the idea of doing Burning Man simply as a way to articulate their anarchist political beliefs and uh, be able to do drugs freely and without police involvement, um, but also to show um, that they could do it, that they could get together as a tribe and uh, make it happen, you know? Um, so by the, by the time I was living with him in 96, um, he was well over it, uh, and explained that he imagined that eventually it would become a for-profit thing. People would be flying in for it. And the original ones, they were free. You know, it was more that you had to figure out how to get yourself out there and be self-sustainable for a few days um, and be willing to deal with the harsh climate. Um, and sadly, what Burning Man is today is pretty much exactly what John, one of the founders, was worried about. And people have often asked me, uh, if I've been to Burning Man or plan to go, and I've always said no because I knew John and knew that uh, it had become what he feared uh, and so different than the original intention of it. And I tried to, uh, I don't know, respect people's intentions and legacies in that way and not support something knowing that the founders kind of would have hated on it. You know, um, some another fun thing about that place was uh, this girl Masako. <laughs> I think she was a Japanese exchange student uh, at one of the art schools in San Francisco, and she was dating uh, my my buddy Damon at the time. And uh, I still have some stickers that she made because she was curious about you know kind of the culture in general and he was a, a graffiti writer and an artist so he was involved in all this kind of stuff and he would make uh, graffiti stickers that said delay 23 is I made lots of stickers too and I remember Masako started making stickers too and was putting these cute little like kind of manga characters on them and uh, she uh, barely knew any English at all but we were teaching her and one of my favorite things, uh, she she would just say, Masako, kick your ass. And <laughs> I fucking loved her. She was the shit. And she did, even after they stopped dating, I remember still seeing her getting up on the street. She would even use spray paint sometimes. And uh, I always thought that she must have been having the best time visiting from Japan and just getting uh, thrown into 90s San Francisco culture and she definitely rose to the occasion and was super, super fun. I think, too, when I lived there, uh, 
I've started I I started having an allergic reaction, but it was really hard to figure out what was causing it. It wasn't like something I was putting on my skin or uh, something I was eating, but I was getting these like bouts of kind of like burning, itching sensation on my skin, mostly my back. Um, and it wouldn't get bumpy or weird or anything. It just felt really like hot. And uh, I just couldn't figure out what it was. Eventually, I started to think it might be uh, tattoo pigments because I had been getting a lot of color tattooed into my body um, during that period and a little bit later. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Something... So, so I went to the general hospital in San Francisco and they explained to me that it was what they called an internal allergy. So it was something in my bloodstream that my body was reacting to as if it was allergic to it, um, which kind of makes sense again, if it was tattoo pigments that were kind of just caught in my system that were causing a problem, you know, it would take time for my body to figure out how to deal with it. At the time, the general hospital folks told me it would take seven years at the most for it to work itself out because every seven years, all of our cells have uh, replicated. Um, So anything from seven years ago on a cellular level is gone. And that's how our body naturally works out allergies. And I was like, oh shit, that's crazy. So in my case, it did seem to be right. I would say around seven years later, the internal allergy went away slowly but surely. But sometimes in the early days, it was pretty terrible. I would wake up feeling like basically my back was on fire and it would sometimes I would wake up in a, in a terror, (laughs) really freaking out. Uh, and if there was a, a girl over, I, it would sometimes be a, a pretty crazy experience to <laughs> jump out of bed freaking out because it felt like I was on fire. Uh, but it did go away. Um, but I remember that was the time in that house because I was wondering if it was like fleas or bed bugs or something like that too. So we fumigated the whole house and, uh, and then I felt bad because it wasn't that and I was like, Jesus Christ. So that was that was crazy. But if you ever have something like that, just know it, it, it should go away eventually. Um, also, when we lived there, I don't know if, I, th- I think uh, my buddy Adrian lived there too. He wrote Maceo, M-A-S-E-O. Uh, honestly, I can't remember if he lived in that same house or he was still just coming around a bunch, but um, I suspect he lived there. But w- w- all of us would notice there was a... Uh, a Victorian house across the street from us that was being rebuilt kind of from the inside out. And you could tell it was going to take them a long time. Um, you know, the house was totally unusable at the time and they had put plywood over the garage door area just to lock all that down while they rebuilt behind there. And I think all of us, every time we walked down the stairs of the, of the front of our house, looked across the street and we're like, God, I got to at least go tag that or something, you know, it was such a good spot. And, uh, I think I, at some point on a Sunday, maybe was just like 
I'm going to fucking go over there and do a piece on that. And they were like, what? Fucking do it. Do it. Fucking do it. So I think while they were sitting on the steps of our house, I walked across the street first with just a bucket of paint and a roller and uh, a tray for the paint. And I just casually and carefully painted the all the plywood uh, a flat color. Uh, it's like a background color. And everything went really well. Nobody said anything to me. People walked right by. Um, police drove right by. Nobody was tripping. So I decided to let the, the paint dry. And I walked back over to the house. And the guys were like, oh, that went pretty good. You didn't get any hassle. You know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. And I packed up some spray paint. And I crept back across the street and uh, just started painting. And again, uh, I, I don't remember having any hassles. I, I feel like there was one neighborhood dude that might have been walking his dog or something that was like, hey, that looks nice. You know, did you get permission from the from the construction company to do that? And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. I live across the street there. And he was like, oh, that's cool. Oh, great. Can't wait to see it finished. And I was like, right on, man. But... Again, multiple police drove right by. And it, again, it was middle of the day. And uh, I finished up the piece. I, I didn't get too complicated with it. I think I was only out there for maybe 30 to 40 minutes. But it looked nice. Ran for a long time. And uh, my, my roommates were fucking stoked. Because they just got to watch me just pull it off daytime. Um, I'll see if I can find a photo of that one. It's a pretty rad, rad photo. Um... I think those years and for years before, I don't think I've mentioned this before in the, the previous podcast because uh, I first met my buddy Jeff um, at uh, Think Skateboards. He was the general manager, so he made sure all the books were on point and, uh, you know, everybody's salaries and all that kind of stuff the the general manager and uh i really really liked jeff he he's just a he's kind of like a hippie guy i guess he was a deadhead kind of before i met him or i guess he still had long hair when i first met him um but uh jeff was jeff's the shit so we got to be good friends we would go get happy hour uh whiskey sometimes he was really into whiskey and into teaching me about all the different kinds of whiskey and uh he uh eventually moved to a house i think it's officially the last house on harrison street in uh potrero hill and uh i would go by there on sunday nights almost every sunday to watch uh the x-files with him and his wife and it was when the, the X-Files was on TV. I think it was on Fox. And uh, it was cool. It was weird. It was unlike any other show at the time. And we were pretty nerdy. So we were we were feeling it. And uh, <coughs> so usually <coughs> I would get there. And I'd uh, play with their dogs. They always had dogs. Really fun dogs. And uh, their son, Jared, you know, I watched him grow up. And uh, so they had this uh, staircase that went from 
their main floor of their home down to the garage, which is kind of in the basement. And uh, along the stairwell there, they would ask me to add something new each time I was there with just like a Sharpie paint pen. And over the years, kind of really hooked that little space up. It was really fun to, every time I'd go visit, just to reminisce on the, the stuff I'd already drawn in there. And uh, I made artwork for them here and there. They were really fucking cool. They still are. And uh, we, uh, uh, so another big part of that was um, uh, Jeff would cook dinner. Usually it was Italian food. That was his forte for sure. And we'd always drink really, really good wine, which I always really appreciated because I couldn't really afford to buy good wine. And they really were into getting good wine. So it was always uh, such a wonderful, like flavorful evening with friends. And it was, like I say, just about every single Sunday. And uh, uh, his wife, Alicia, I don't know if she still is, but she was like the head nurse at the general hospital in San Francisco, which is not far from their home. Uh, I know she was in the ICU a lot, too, but, you know, suffice to say she worked her way up there to become a, a head person. I'm not even sure if she still works there now. Um, but, you know, as an, a nurse at the hospital there, she saw everything, all kinds of crazy shit. And again, it's San Francisco in the 90s. So you can imagine, <laughs> like, you know, the wildest of the wildest shit. And so part of having dinner with them was she'd say, oh, I have a story to tell you from the hospital, something that happened this week. And I'd just be like, oh, boy, here we go. Because <laughs> they were the wildest true stories ever. And uh, I'm just going to recall one right now uh, that was one of my favorites that um, a guy had gone into the hospital with uh, extreme constipation. I don't think he had passed anything in a day or two or could have been longer. And he was in a lot of pain and needed help. And uh, so they brought him in and they uh, took x-rays and I think they tried to give him an enema and got him flown again. And they started finding these plastic, look like little plastic balls, I suppose, um, maybe about as big as a marble. And some of them had like plastic hair coming out of them, um, which was just like, what the fuck, you know? And... I think they saw that there were maybe 12 of those objects in his body from the x-ray scans or whatever that they had done. And I'm not sure at what point, you know, they asked him, you know, uh, we see all these different uh, foreign objects in your body. Uh, Can you explain what these are? And he explained that he would uh, eat... Uh, swallow whole basically uh, heads from Barbie dolls and as he would pass them he would masturbate until he had an orgasm and that was his thing and at the time he had again 12 of thing these things in his body and they were like yeah but they don't really look you know like some of them you could kind of tell 
still kind of looked like a doll head and they had a bit more of the hair but he i guess he explained that he was boiling them after he passed them to get them basically sterile again and then he would um eat them again and again the next one that would get pushed out he would jack off while it was coming out maybe a few came out at a time i don't fucking know the details of this shit but i just remember being like fuck okay i couldn't have possibly imagined that one that's the that's the level of like sexual depravity that's happening out there in San Francisco that I'm just blissfully unaware of. <laughs> but it really, <coughs> you know, let me know where I was living. And that was just one story. Some of her stories of like the flesh eating disease that was going around amongst the junkies and stuff like that. It's just, oh my God, amazing. But I, I got to save something for later. <laughs> At the, around that time too, uh, I'm not sure not sure exactly how i should ask him sometime but my friend chris woodcock he's a really amazing photographer and a teacher and uh i can't remember how we connected at first i wish i could but i do remember going into the the muni train tunnels in san francisco uh with him to let him photograph me while i was doing uh graffiti down there late at night uh, in particular, I remember taking him to the tunnels behind the Safeway on Market Street near, uh, uh, what street would that be, Fillmore? Uh, or Church, where it turns into Church? Anyway, the locals will know there's those tunnels in just behind the Safeway. You can just walk right down on the tracks right into the tunnels. Uh, you know, you got to be really careful about when you go down there and you could get killed really easy there's really nowhere to run in those tunnels in particular until you're down in there pretty far and you can get into the middle where the stairways are and then there's actually quite a bit of room down there to paint and get loose uh but it was one of my favorite places to paint uh it was like different levels it was fun because and dangerous in this way too because you'd hear a train coming but because of the echo and the way the acoustics were in there it was really really hard to tell what direction the trains were coming so sometimes they would just sneak up on you quick coming around a turn and it was uh it was a very very exciting place um i think uh i think it was that year i'll bet you i have photos of this but i i was invited to do the scribble jam which was uh like a hip-hop festival in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I believe my friend Dalek uh, was the one that connected me with it and um, with his friend uh, Jacer, who lived in Cincinnati. Uh, later on, Jacer started writing rapes. And, uh, I, God, many years ago now, he passed away. But he was, he was fucking rad. Um, and... Uh, so I went, I flew out to Cincinnati, uh, met up with everybody. Uh, we painted multiple walls over different days. There were breakdancing battles happening, MC battles. Um, I feel like Eminem was in 
uh, a famous freestyle battle at a scribble jam back then. Uh, I don't know if it was that year, 96. I'd have to look, look that up. But I do remember, I, I honestly think I was there when Eminem uh, was battling one year. Because I remember uh, kids talking about it, Eminem, and I was like, what a dumb name. The guy named himself after fucking Candy. Like, <laughs> that's weak. <laughs> Eminem. But uh, turns out he was dope. <laughs> he was super sick. Sometimes it's funny like that when people have like kind of dumb names, but they fucking make something of it, you know? It, it trips me out. Uh, but anyway, uh, he was there. Uh, I remember meeting Lead. Uh, forget where he was from, back east somewhere, but he had a really cool style. And uh, Emit, who I believe I already knew at that point, uh, was there. Uh, Pose was there. I think that might have been the first time I met him. And East was there too. Uh, old school East. He's the fucking shit. If you don't know about East, you're tripping. You need to learn about him. Uh, but they were all there. And uh, all the best crews in the Midwest were just flexing hard. And I was kind of like... Uh, Kind of on a solo tip because most of the productions at, at Scribble Jam were whole crews getting together, and I wasn't really in uh, any of those big crews that from the Midwest, so I just kind of did my thing. But uh, it was super, super fun. I, I remember the best part of that. I, I think I, th I think Jacer had a a hot tub in his backyard, and uh, there's just like fucking. 30 graffiti writers partying at his house so much beer getting drank and uh me and dalek kind of the old guys of the of the bunch in our swim trunks in the hot tub drinking jack and cokes i think jack and coke was like dalek's thing i'm almost sure of that because there's a few occasions when i would hang out with him and that would be the only time i'd ever had jack and cokes <laughs> it's kind of a deadly combo uh but that was really fucking fun. I was really lucky to be able to check that out and kind of represent for the Bay Area a little bit. I definitely had a style that stuck out there. But again, just felt really lucky to have checked that out. Uh, that same year, I did another trip to uh, El Paso. Um, I think my man Grave there invited me and uh, Suge and Focus uh, came along too. I think Shook drove down from Albuquerque and I believe Focus was in San Francisco with me and we might have traveled together. And uh, if you don't know about Focus too, he's another super fucking heavy hitter in my mind. Really super sick style. He did lots of freights. His freight style was really fucking super sick. And he spelled it F-O-K-I-S. Uh, I believe he's a tattoo artist now. I'm uh, not sure where he is. I haven't been in touch with him in a long time. But, man, I loved painting with Focus. He was super fun, dude. And uh, would get down and was uh, savvy at night. Was a, a solid partner. And uh, we had a really fucking good time in El Paso that year. That was like, uh, I feel like there was a night where we were spray painting inside of a nightclub. 
um, while they were playing hip hop music and people were break dancing, <laughs> the, the club was getting super fumed out because we were spray painting in there and nobody was tripping. <laughs> Those are the, the good old days. And uh, I remember too, we, uh, I forget if we were with somebody else, but I, if I remember right, Grave took us somewhere to paint freight trains. And it was so fucking dark. Like, there was no moon. You, you you couldn't even see the trains until you were, like, right up on them. And uh, I just remember that being really difficult, uh, as you might imagine, to be trying to do nice graffiti when you can barely see. And even my color blindness, uh, I've been told, is an adaptation for night hunting. That's why only men have it, supposedly. Um, so my night vision is actually really, really fucking good. It's probably better than yours, but, uh, when it's just that dark, it's, <laughs> it's kind of useless. And I, I feel like when we went back the next day to see the trains we painted and they were, they weren't that great. <laughs> we were missing outlines and shit, but I remember that being really, really fun. And that was a time too, when I was able to steal, uh, these, uh, like at the Kinko's and whatnot, they had started pulling out these plotter printers. So it would uh, print out copies that were uh, three feet wide and up to like six feet long or whatever. Uh, and they had them out kind of on the floor within the self-serve section. And the, the employees would come over and show you how to use the machine. And then you had to go back up to the, uh, to the register and pay for your copies. But they had no way really of knowing how many copies you made or how much paper you used. So it was a common thing just to pay for one copy and then keep like 10 more. Um, and I, I definitely took advantage of that. I would clean out their paper rolls sometimes and they'd even have to load in a new roll for me. And I would just still go nuts. And I was putting up these big... Uh, like I say, they, they they were usually about three foot by two by three foot, I guess. And uh, I would glue them up with wallpaper paste out of a bucket using a big brush. Um, just kind of walk around and do that on Sundays, especially. It was really easy. Nobody was tripping. And uh, I took some of those along to El Paso and uh, posted them up and even did some where I incorporated the poster into graffiti pieces and whatnot and uh, that was really fun to kind of be a little more multimedia and I remember people being like oh yeah we don't have to just use spray paint you know we can use all kinds of things and I think that's a good attitude to have with with that stuff um I think that was the only traveling I did I, I did have lots of uh visitors in San Francisco uh I remember one occasion that year that uh Big Five came up to visit I think from LA and I think at the time too he had been in contact with me and he was also in touch with a maze and I rarely interacted with a maze at all I always thought that he thought I was a chump <laughs> and uh yeah he, he he he's just a interesting guy I like what he does he's a strange guy 
But anyway, he, he somehow was just going to drive. I think he had an old Volvo or something. <laughs> but uh, and if I, I hope I'm remembering this right. But me and him and Big Five went uh, to the East Bay to paint some freight trains. And I think Amaze had the spot and was kind of taking us to his spot. And we got over there, and I think the place where he was going to have us paint trains, there were no trains. That happens a lot with freight train stuff, where the your favorite place, you get there, and there's no trains, because they just happen to have moved all of them out, and they haven't brought anything new in yet. So then you're like, ah, fuck. So unless you know specific other spots... Um, you're just going to have to go along track sides in those warehouse districts and just search. But then you're a little more suspicious because the cops could think you're looking to like break into a building and steal shit because you're just kind of creeping around and, you know, you admitted that you're there just to do graffiti. That's almost just as bad. So I think we tried, we might've just gone to the main yard in Oakland after all of that if I remember right. And I think too, when we finally got to the trains and decided on which trains to paint, um, there was a bit of a discussion as to whether or not to hit a refrigerated train. So some of them, they need to keep the interior contents a certain temperature um, so they don't rot, you know, like fruit, vegetables, stuff like that. Um, and they don't ever let those trains sit for very long because they're refrigerated. So there's a, you know, like a gas powered, uh, generator that's keeping the freezing, uh, air going in there. And so it's just burning gas 24 seven, uh, while the train is chilling. So overnight, you know, the compressor will turn on here and there as it needs to cool off the inside of the the train again. Um, So from a graffiti writer's perspective, it can be a really good train to hit because you know it's not going to just sit in the yard. Those trains move around and move around fast. Um, So they would get a lot of rail time, basically. Um, The downside is when those compressors turn on, you can't hear anything but the compressor. So normally in a freight train yard, all the trains are silent, everything is quiet. So if police or dogs or anything comes, you can hear them coming from really far away because it's just dead silent. So when you paint the refrigerated cars, you're kind of giving up some safety uh, because you're just not going to hear anybody coming up on you until they're right on you. Uh, and I think we, we got away okay that night, but that was, a, that was a discussion that I had, if I remember right, with Big Five. We all did simple pieces. I think we might have done a few throw-ups, did some tags, had a good time. Uh, went back to, I think it was a Maze's car. i got to ask Big Five about this. I'd love to interview him someday and hear his recollection of what happened, if he even remembers this night. It's hard to remember sometimes when you've done graffiti like a thousand or fifteen hundred nights of your life. (laughs) But uh, 
I feel like I remember us being in Oakland, leaving the train yard and going down probably international uh, now that I know Oakland better. And they were doing sideshows. Uh, people were all lined up, checking out the cruise. All the Everybody had all their cool rides out. Uh, all the girls were out chilling. Um, and we were like the only white kids that you could see as far as you could see <laughs> in this, what I think was a Volvo looking really out of place. People literally like kind of pointing and laughing at us cause we just got stuck in this kind of cruise and, uh, it was a little tense, but people were being mad cool. And, uh, yeah, it was just one of those, those Bay area moments, you know, <laughs> late night in Oakland. Uh, but like I say, every, again, everything was cool. I think we got back to the city just fine and split up and it was a, a good adventure. And I did stay in touch with the big five a bunch. He's a tattooer. And, uh, I really, uh, look up to what he's done and, uh, admire his family and all that kind of shit. Amazed. I'm not so sure what he was up to. I think that might've been the only time I ever painted with him. <laughs> You know, it's a rarity. So another funny thing, though, that happened that year, uh, I painted with his partner, Twist. Now, everybody knows about Twist, or if you don't, you should. You, I mean, he was kind of the Bay Area guy. Uh, Barry McGee, uh, he's still killing it uh, in his own way, and he always did it his own way, and I always liked that. But... uh uh, out at uh, the University of San Francisco, it's on top of a, a big hill, kind of overlooks uh, Golden Gate Park, and you can see across to Haight-Ashbury from there. It's a really beautiful spot. And uh, on the, I guess that would be the north side of the campus, there's a big cliff side, and uh, there's a parking lot that kind of overhangs over the cliff side a bit. And... Uh, there's like uh, along the cliffside under the parking lot there was this big concrete wall that just kind of uh, anchored right into the rock and uh, it varied in height from just like a foot tall up to maybe 15 feet tall and kind of was I don't know it's hard to describe you could probably go back there today, although I, I doubt there's any graffiti back there or anything. Um, but you could probably still find the walking trails that'll take you back there. Uh, I think it was a kid that writes C4. He's not a kid anymore, but he was a kid then. He was probably only 15. Uh, and he knew some of my friends in the neighborhood, like Conker. I think RJD2 was still in the neighborhood back then. Uh, and he took me to this spot and was like, dude, there's a great graffiti wall, like just up the street. And I was like, what the fuck? How, how, you know? So he took me there and I was like, fuck, this is sick. And it was, it was fucking super sick. And there was already a bunch of good pieces and tags and throw ups and stuff down there. People had definitely been getting loose down there, but it was starting to get more known among the writers all over town. So it was kind of a, a destination to come check it out and uh, everybody was encouraging me to do a nice piece there um, and I was like fuck well 
if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it on one of the tallest sections, which are kind of the most, it's like the hardest to paint, but it was like the biggest wall spaces down there. So they were kind of what I considered the more like super fame spots. So I picked out a section that was probably 12 to 15 feet tall. I had a ladder. Um, I did kind of half the wall. I buffed out the whole thing. And then I, I think I did half of it with characters and stuff just kind of a, a mix of things not like a wild style piece because it was kind of tall and not so wide and i just left the other half kind of empty and i don't know how i had gotten in touch with twist or somebody was talking to him through me might have been a maze i forget and i didn't really even think he was going to show up but he did he came he had some silver and some black and some other random stuff and i was like if you just want to do some you know just some tws or whatever you want to do up there in a character or whatever you want to do i'll make sure that the background is consistent and it all comes together and he was like cool so he didn't get too crazy i think he thought it was kind of funny and he wasn't the kind of guy that liked to paint like daytime spots that weren't like on the street so i was just thrilled and honored and humbled that he would come out and even just do this simple thing with me. Um, I gotta find a photo of that too. Uh, but that was fucking epic for me. Um, and I think that ran for a long, long time under there. Um, people just really respected that spot. And, uh, like I say, once twist painted it too, like it was on everybody's radar and everybody wanted to go check it out. Um, Let's see what else was going on back then. Oh yeah, Cycle, my man Cycle from New York. He uh, he moved to San Francisco in '96. My notes say September. I must have checked with him about this. Some of the details here. Um, I had seen his graffiti in photographs uh, that I was getting from a dude named SMK back east. I think SMK was in like the Baltimore area and he was a really avid photo trader and I had been trading photos with him for years. Um, and by that, I mean like actual film prints of photos of graffiti um, that we were all shooting and making reprints of and sending to everybody. Um, it's kind of the only way to see graffiti back then other than stuff that was in magazines. Uh, Cause of course this is still, basically the early early years of the internet um i'm not even sure if the first graffiti website graffiti.org was around i think that came out in like i don't know that might have been 96 i should check that too um but still it was that tr kind of transition time so i'd seen cycle stuff and it was super rad it was like really futuristic he did, uh, he could do really nice traditional graffiti too, but he did these really cool styles that to me look like spaceships and things. They were very like machine, uh, but, but again, very futuristic kind of, sh I don't know how to describe them, but it was, it was dope. There was a few people fucking with that style. Remember Emit was fucking with that too in Gaze, um, G-A-Z-E. Uh, again, these are all like photos that I was getting from SMK. And uh, I think at the time, too, uh, Cycle was living with Evade, uh, Dave Schubert, 
who passed away recently um rest in peace i miss that dude um but yeah so cycle and evade were living together um which was just it was cool you know i was like all these graffiti uh friends of mine were connecting and it was just super super popping um i think i might have been the first person to take cycle to the oakland tracks too um which was a big deal i don't know how often he made it out there but i was painting in the east bay almost every weekend back then it was a big part of my graffiti scene for sure uh but i remember him being really impressed there was probably still some dream pieces there um at the time vogue you know all that kind of stuff which would have was totally inspiring the fuck out of all of us um too at that point that year i was still painting freight trains with jace too if i wanted to paint with him i pretty much had to go do trains but we were definitely going out maybe once a month or once every other month i would connect with him and we would drive out to the east bay and paint some trains sometimes we would go uh south to remember there was a spot uh in like south san francisco that was a cool little layup and uh I remember he showed me this really cool trick where he would uh, take his messenger bag off and he would hook it over the top of a fence where there was a pole and uh, he would step on the bag part and pull himself up over the fence using it kind of like a stepladder and I just thought that was fucking genius and he was like well you know go ahead and use it and pop yourself over and of course i probably weighed twice as much as him <laughs> and i broke his lucky fucking messenger bag <laughs> and i knew he was super bummed because <laughs> he was the one that suggested i try it and uh, i broke it and uh yeah i broke his fucking lucky bag but uh i don't even know if he i think i i must have offered to get him a new bag and he was like don't sweat it it's okay <laughs> uh um i think that year too oh yeah i see it here uh on uh oh i had the exact date july 14th 96 uh the night before i had eaten a bunch of lsd and in the midst of it i decided to try to do some graffiti outlines um because i was uh, I don't know how to explain it. I, I just felt like I was in a place where the approach would be different if I tried to articulate uh, the trip a little bit through the letters, through the shapes. <coughs> so I ended up doing this really weird piece that says acid. And it was symmetrical, like a lot of my pieces were that, that year. Um, I did that for a few years, the symmetrical pieces and uh but this one was all like weird curves and i don't know it's really strange i'll try to find another piece of it too um but i remember writing up in the the corner of the piece deoxyribonucleic acid which or uh no not not dna um what did i write lysergic acid diethalamide that's what it is lsd lysergic acid diethalamide i think that's what it is um and uh shout out to albert hoffman who i 
believe was an early synthesizer of LSD. In any case, it was wild. It was very different. And the next day, I decided to go out to the Oakland tracks to the Coliseum yard and paint this uh, piece that I did. And I was still feeling the uh, residual effects of the acid from the night before for sure. Um, and I remember going down there pretty early in the morning because uh, I felt really weird and I wanted to be alone. I didn't want to be distracted by graffiti writers coming by and wanting to shoot the shit. Uh, so I thought, oh, I'll just go down really early. Um, so I did. I got down there early, uh, did my piece. I think just as I was finishing it, uh, Susan Farrell from Art Crimes, who founded it, uh, she was out taking photographs uh, for the website and caught up with me. And I th believe I'd already run into her quite a few times. So we were on a friendly basis. Uh, and I think she felt safe when she saw me out painting by myself. Whereas, you know, other times being a, a solo woman with a really nice camera at a graffiti yard just kind of asking for trouble. But I, I don't think she got much trouble. I think people understood where she was coming from. Uh I think that day, too, I ran into Crash with a K, K-R-A-S-H. He's a, a Oakland writer. He was in TDK crew. He was an old friend of Dreams and whatnot. But he was a, a fellow psychonaut, uh, meaning someone who enjoyed psychedelic drugs. And I believe that day he was there, too, on acid. And if I remember right, he said he had found some old window pane acid uh, from back in the day that was really famous, very, very strong, uh, potent, uh, good high, you know, and, uh, he was having a really good time and, uh, I'd see him pretty often actually out there and we would often both be on acid at the same time. I went out there one time too, you know, uh, with the intention to do something different. Uh, the, the yard had become, a gallery of wild style graffiti like the most complicated complex colorful dynamic with all the extras um it was a real competitive place and uh i was doing that too i was trying to flex as hard as possible but just one day i thought i'm just going to try to go as simple and as big as possible and i just took uh, i think i had a gallon of black house paint a gallon of white house paint, a few cans of red spray paint, maybe a can or two of yellow, and that might have been all that I had. And I think, if I remember right, I had brought a extension pole for my roller, and I'm not sure if I brought a ladder or I happened to find a ladder down there, or I forget how that worked out, but. In any case, I had a ladder. And I was down there early enough that I didn't run into anybody. And like I said, uh, I just tried to do a really big, simple piece. I w had been doing this piece that I thought of as my stamp, which is like a, a simple style piece that you can knock out in a matter of like five minutes. That's what I think of as a stamp. It's like a step up from a throw up. Um, cause it's actual letter forms and sometimes you add a shadow or a 3d. I think most people know what I'm talking about, but I decided to do my stamp again, but do it, like I say, about 15 feet tall and maybe 25 feet wide. 
um, which was ambitious as fuck for sure. Uh, but I, I got it all done in a single day and, uh, it was kind of legendary. It's like where most people would pull up to park, to walk into the yard where, when you look straight across from the parking lot, there was my wall. <coughs> and because everything was so wild style and super sick, it really, really stood out. And I think it, you know, it started getting dissed here and there, you know, soon afterwards, because those little toy scribblers will do that if you do something big and simple. And uh, I did, I think it lasted for a while though, because I think eventually even people started doing wild style pieces over the bottom of it, and you could still see the whole top half of the piece above everything. Uh, I was really, really proud of that one. I, I'm hoping I can share a photo of that one too on my, uh, on my Instagram when I, uh, announce this, uh, this podcast. Um, also in, uh, 96, uh, I think actually when I was still living at, uh, eighth and Geary, uh, before the, the sketchy roommate came into the, the, the picture, um, Persuay, Nyes, N-Y-S-E, Zane, and our, our buddy Heroin, they came to visit uh, me, and I think they stayed with me, just crashed on the floor, like, full fucking, like, you know, <laughs> gnarly graffiti dude. Uh, and we did all kinds of pieces. We went to the Oakland tracks and did, like, fuck. We did, like, 150 feet long fucking production that was just nuts. We all flexed so hard, as hard as we could, because it was probably the most competitive, you know, graffiti yard on the West Coast, I would imagine, because of just the sheer number of A-list crews that would uh, show up there and get loose. Um, also, well, let's see. I think it was that same trip, though, that... Uh, I did a juxtapose interview uh, for a graffiti issue that they were going to do, that they did do. Um, it might have even been the first graffiti mention in the magazine. But, uh, see, that's the thing, because that, that was at the house on Oak Street. I remember just in my memory um, that it was the house on Oak Street. And we were in the kitchen where I was saying earlier we would make those gigantic uh, vats of fucking soup for the homeless people. But uh, I forget who was there, but we were recording it. Uh, I remember Twist w was there. Doug One was there. And uh, Persuay. And I have a note here, too, and that, that Persuay felt like he was too baked to talk much. <laughs> Yeah, that would happen because they people come from all over, and I always had really good weed, and it was uh, or it was just around. Um, I'm trying to think what else happened that year. It's just about ready to wind up here. Um, I had a friend named Kelly, Kelly Krantz, uh, and he was an amazing illustrator kind of in a comic book style like kind of like simon bisley for the comic book people out there really amazing musculature on his figures and just core you know violence and whatnot gore um super rad and he 
was doing uh, graphics for Adrenaline Skateboards, which was uh, something that was in my office that was like a offshoot of the Think Brands um, and founded, I believe, by Chris Sen and Jaya Bondaroff. Um, Jaya also passed away, too. Rest in peace. He was the shit. But uh, anyway, uh, Kelly Krantz. So he, he was coming by the warehouse here and there to drop off artwork and he was a real strange dude and i i liked him though uh his artwork was just so fucking cool and i didn't know how to draw like he does at all he's just one of those things he's got a flair for things and uh i think i was able to convince him to come and do a graffiti wall with me every time i would bring it up he'd be like oh my god i've never spray painted i'll be terrible and i'm like dude you're so good you'd you'd get the hang of it really fucking quick i guarantee just calm down you know i'll leave you a space and uh you know you can do your thing and so uh one weekend i told him i'm gonna be doing a nice big piece down on Front Street near the Embarcadero, there was a wall down there that we liked to paint, and I was just going to paint over one of my old pieces, and I wanted him to do a character for me. So I start laying out the piece, and sure enough, he shows up. And I was like, fuck yeah, dude. So instead of the letter I in giant, I want you to do a character, like a, a you know a, a monster or a person or whatever the fuck you want to do and he's like really whatever the fuck i want to do and i was like yeah dude whatever the fuck you want to do there's your spot if you need help like learning how to use the spray paint and the different caps and stuff i'm happy to show you all that no big deal so we get started and i could tell he's kind of it looks like a, a monster kind of thing like a mouth of a monster and it's there's like teeth and shit and that's all. It's looking sick. You know, it's kind of hard to tell just from his sketch what it was. Um, and I was really, to be honest, busy painting the rest of the wall, which was it was quite big. It was probably a 30 foot long piece. Um, and uh, he as it got along further, I was like, damn, dude, that looks sick. What is it? And he's like, it's a vagina monster. And it was this, you know, like eight foot tall vagina that had like teeth and (laughs) like a a tongue coming out it was crazy but he was so good he had shaded it just perfect you know and it was in a very different style than mine so it, it it stood out from my piece but it was all connected just right in the end um to make it all look cohesive and it was just so cool. And I, I feel like I remember him just being like, I don't know about that, man. And I'm like, dude, that's the coolest thing. And then it was so fun to run into my friends. And they'd be like, yo, who did you paint with on Front Street? And I'm like, oh, that's my friend Kelly. And they're like, what is that thing? And I was like, it's a fucking vagina monster. And they would all just crack up laughing because then they'd realize, oh, oh, yeah, that is what it is. <laughs> Oh, man. Those were fucking fun years, man. I remember, too, meeting a girl that came by that wall. It was so sketchy. I guess I don't even need to get into that because nothing happened with her. But that would happen sometimes. Just people out lurking around on a Sunday afternoon in San Francisco by themselves, you know. But uh, 
I think that's it for now. I mean, I have one more story from that year. That's a, a rooftop I did with a door, um, who is, uh, Reyes. You probably know him as these days. Um, but he, uh, me and him did a rooftop, uh, across from the Virgin, Virgin Megastore, um, that year, but I, I think I'm going to save that. I'm going to try to get him, uh, on the podcast in full interview format. And I, I want to see what his, uh, recollection of that was. That'd be way more fun than me trying to remember my part right now. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. I hope that was fun. Uh, next time I'll probably get into 1997. Uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.